I'll just add a welcome also. Valerie and I are happy to be here. We will first introduce ourselves and then we'll introduce our topic for the day, which as you know from the title is Private Foundations Rules of Behavior. Um, so I am at Fiduciary Trust Company. I am uh, part of the Trust and Estates legal team here. I'm a trust counsel. Um, in that role, I work with, um, well, Fiduciary Trust Company serves often as a corporate trustee. So I work with trust in, the, in that capacity and estate planning um, in that capacity. My connection to the nonprofit world is um, through the estate planning side. Um, the nonprofit world, I think, as you know, has people, corporate attorneys and tax attorneys and um, and then attorneys like Valerie, who specialize solely on nonprofits. Um, and so I do a fair amount with charitable giving and private foundations and the work I do. I also work with our donor advised fund program through Fiduciary Trust Charitable. Um, so I'm often looking at both private foundations and charities in that context also. Valerie, to turn it to you for an introduction. Thanks, Kelly. And hi, everyone. Thank you again for being here today. Really appreciate you joining us. Um, so again, I'm Valerie Sussman. I serve as legal counsel for philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. So what that means basically in practice, I serve a wide variety of private foundation clients, public charity clients, as well as many other types of 501c and tax exempt organizations. Um, you know, it's really a great area of work. I love seeing what our clients do every day. And I do find that private foundations are especially fascinating. Um, in terms of the many roles that will apply, as you'll see later in our presentation. Great. So we will um, jump in then. And let's see, when we practiced, I was able to get our slides to advance. And of course, they aren't now. So I'm going to stop sharing and I will try them again. and hit the replay on the slides. Let's see. Valerie, can you tell me what you see? Just the title. I think you've got the first slide up there, um, the cover slide, Private Foundations Rules of Behavior is what I can see right now. Okay. Try it one more time or I said when we um, tested it and did uh, in advance of actually starting the recording, it was advancing just fine, but right now it's not. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to share screen. What we need is we can just jump ahead and have. Um, I can try on saying my screen as well. It's not working. Yeah, let me no try worries. one more time. I think I've I've got it going on. Um, let's see now. If I do escape now, I will try the screen share. Exit the minimize. You think that after three years we know how to do this so well? <laughs> And so it's showing the whole thing, right? And I'm going to, okay, let's, yes. It works, right? Excellent. All right. Got it. <laughs> okay. Now that we've gotten that taken care of. So um, Valerie and I are going to cover two basic um, or answer kind of two 
main questions today. One is what are private foundations? And then the other is why do we care whether an organization is a private foundation or a public charity? Um, so I will kind of cover the first part, what private foundations are and how you differentiate private foundations from public charities and how you can determine whether an organization is one or the other. Um, and then Valerie will shift to kind of the why do we care side and specifically looking at special rules of behavior that apply to private foundations. Um, and, and in addition to the rules, um, donors, especially the donor limitations for that are different between private foundations and public charities are important to both individual donors and organizations. So generally, private foundations have a 30% limit and public charities have 50% limit. Um, I mentioned that now, we won't go into that in depth. Um, but we will go in depth on the other topics. So just to start out, and I'll go through this faster since we had the glitch at the beginning. Um, think about what private foundations you know about or the names of private foundations you've heard. So I'm just gonna fill this screen with a bunch of uh, organizations that are called foundations. I actually don't know if all of these are private foundations or public charities. I haven't looked them all up, um, but let's just assume that they are and see if you notice anything about these, um, the names of these foundations. You know, so we have the Amelia Peabody Foundation, the Paul and Phyllis Fireman Charitable Foundation. We've got um, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation, um, Richard and Susan Smith Family Foundation, New Balance Foundation. And so just thinking about these names and, and maybe other organizations that you know, Kind of at its simplest, if you think about what a private foundation is, it's an organization where the assets have come from, it, that they're private, the assets have come from maybe an individual, maybe just a family, or maybe just a corporation, or one or two corporations or individuals or families. But that's different than a public charity where all of the assets or the the revenue or the the uh, input into the organization comes from the public um, as opposed to one or two people. So at its, again, at its most basic, that's one way to think about it. Um, but of course, we'll look more at more specific rules and how we look at it kind of in a more legal way. Um, but just wanted to start with that because in some sense, it's um, it's not a mystery. Private foundations are private and public charities are public. And so that's always something you can go back to in thinking about them. Um, but let, looking more at the legal rules, uh, the where we start, and oh, I should mention um, that in addition to, so we have a PowerPoint that we'll use today that's mostly pictures, um, but separately sent out to you, um, either NOAA sent it or, or the BBA, um, there's a written outline that we have that is all the detail of what we're discussing today. And then there's also an annotated Schedule A that was sent out to you, and I will touch on that um, in a minute. Um, so starting, and you can follow along in the outline, or you can just follow along um, on the slides and look at the outline later. Um, but what we where we start is that uh, with 501c3 organizations. And I think when people think about uh, tax-exempt organizations or they think of charities, uh, even no, lawyers, but also just the general public, I think understand the concept of 501c3s that, oh, those are the those are the charities. Um, 501c3s are divided into private foundations and public charities. 
And the default is that all 501c3s are considered private foundations. So that's the default. And if you want to be considered a public charity, then you have to prove that you're a public charity. So again, we have 501c3 organizations is the category. And then under that, we have private foundations and public charities. Um, even though the this um, seminar is private foundations and Valerie's going to be talking about the rules, we're going to spend a little bit talking about public charities and, and how we define those. Uh, if you don't want to be a private foundation or, or if you're just trying to figure out what the organization you're working with is. So private foundation, again, is the default. If you want to be a public charity, um, there are three ways that that you um, that an organization is a public charity. In the outline, I've listed the, the code sections that define these, and you can read through that. Um, another way, in addition to just kind of the code sections that walk through it, is to organize public charities by type. So the first type would be charities that qualify automatically. So these are just because of, they qualify as public charities just because of what they are. So churches, schools, hospitals, government units, um, by virtue of what they do or, or the subject matter they deal with, those qualify as public charities. Um, the next category we have is supporting organizations. And we won't talk too much about those today, but they are connected to public charities in um, either their leadership structure or sometimes by financial support um, and either a combined leadership structure or one that's um, one that appoints another. And those are different types of supporting organizations, but those also come under the category of public charity um, and are a different type. So they're not um, private foundations. And then the third one that um, we have is organizations that qualify as public charities because of they pass one of the public support tests. And this is where we start to get a little bit more confusing. Um, there are three public support tests and they don't have great names. So sometimes it can be, it can be easy to mix them up. Uh, there are details to each test that come out uh, depending on the facts of your organization. Um, but the tests are, a 33 and a third percent support test, 10% facts and circumstances test, and then a one third support or revenue test. Um, so again, backing up, we have the 501c3 organizations. Default is gonna be that you're a private foundation. You have to prove that you're a public charity. You can either qualify automatically by virtue of what you are, by being a supporting organization, or being an organization that, that passes these public support tests. Um, so we will, look at each of these tests. The I'll just mention them briefly and then we'll walk through um, the Schedule A to uh, look a little bit more in detail at each of them. So the 33 and a third public support test is really just looking at a uh, percentage, like what is your total support and then what percentage of that support comes from the public. The number two test is if you fail to meet 33 and a third, then you can show facts and circumstances that um, show you really should be considered supported by a public charity, even though you don't meet that first test. And then the third test um, is where you can include the revenue of the organization as part of public support. So let's look at that. Again, you can see there's, it can be, from the start can be a little bit hard to understand uh, What's the difference between these? 
And I've decided over the years that the best way to look at this um, is by going through, um, let's see, is by going through Schedule A. So I've, as I mentioned, in addition to our outline, we have sent to everyone an annotated Schedule A. So I'm gonna share that now. And backing up, Schedule A, where does that come from? Why am I talking about it? All uh, public charities will file, need to file um, reporting, uh, have reporting requirements with the IRS and then also with the state where they're located. So for the IRS reporting, a charity will file a Form 990 if it's a public charity, and it'll file a Form 990 PF if, if it's a private foundation. So a public charity, um, in order to, again, prove that it is a public charity, this is part of the schedule that they'll fill out when they do the annual filing requirement each year. And I find that this is helpful because it just walks through each of the tests. And so we will we'll do that. Um, on the first page, you can see I've indicated, so it's asking, so what is the reason for your public charity status? Again, it's asking the organization to explain why are you a public charity instead of a private foundation? The first um, six checkboxes here go to that first category we talked about, which are status-based. So you can see it shows a church, a school, a hospital. So again, organizations that are public charities just by virtue of what they do or the category of what of or the subject matter they deal with. And then number seven, if this is checked, it means that you're going to explain either in test number one or test number two why you're a public charity. And here you can see kind of a plain language explanation of what that test is. So an organization that normally receives a substantial part of its support from a government unit or from the general public um, as described, and then there's the code section for it. And that tells you, okay, if you if this is how you're qualifying as a public charity, you're gonna complete part two. And we'll look at that in a minute. Um, going down to line 10, you can see this explains test number three. And it's looking at uh, if you get more than 33 and a third of your support from contributions and no more than 33 and a third, um, so there's two parts to this. I'm going to explain it now. We'll, we'll go through it when we're at that part of, of this form. And then the last um, line here, line 12, goes through the different types of supporting organizations that we talked about. And again, some nice plain language explanation of what they are. So going back to, again, test number one, if we're saying that we just typically our organization receives a substantial part of its support from the general public, how are we proving that? We're um, putting that on, on part two here. Um, and so here's where we can see that in section A is a description of what the public support is. And in section B is the total support. So that's our fraction. It's public support over the total support. And you want it to be at least 33 and a third. And so all of that information is here on what you would need to look at and the specific facts of your organization um, to be able to make that calculation. So some things that we want to point out are, um, first, that this calculation is a five-year average. So you can see that this has, you know, the information for the past five years. If you're a new organization, obviously you can't um, put that, put the years you don't have. Um, and there's some presumptions you can make and we'll 
Look at that in line 13. Um, you can back out unusual grants. So if, they're, if the organization you're working with happens to receive a million dollar donation that in any given year doesn't typically get, um, if that donation would cause the organization to fail this public support test, then that can just be excluded completely from this calculation. Um, the other part of public support is if you have a donor that you aren't gonna take out as an unusual grant and not count it at all, um, but if it's a large donor, you can only count part of their um, percent. So let's say you have you know, 10 donors, one of them, uh, the size of their contribution is more than 2% of the, the total amount you get that year, then you need to back out part of that donor's contribution. Uh, total support, again, um, you would fill out the information here and, and what you're getting to, again, is whether the percentage you end up with between your public support and your total support. So that would just be other things, you know, what do you get other than donations from the public, your net income, business, unrelated business activities. Um, if that percentage is uh, greater than 33 and a third, then um, you've met the test. If it's not, then you have not met the test. So then you would go on to test number two, which is facts and circumstances. And test number two, um, again, here you're saying, well, I didn't, our organization didn't meet the 33 and a third, but we really are organized and all the facts surrounding our organization uh, really should be considered a public charity. And so some of the things that you can list in the facts and circumstances test would be just the level of your percentage. So if you miss 33 and a third, but you have 30%, that's a good fact. Um, where are the sources of support? So are they from a large number of people rather than from just members of a single family? What is the governing body of the organization? Um, does it represent the general public rather than a small group of donors? Uh, is the does the organization have facilities or um, services or programs that are available to the general public? Um, or is there a membership organization where a large percentage of the public or uh, is it is our members or um, are available to be members? Um, so those, if if you're fitting, if you're qualifying as a public charity under this facts and circumstances test, you would list these facts at the end of Schedule A here, there's a lines where you can do that, and I've noted that. So then the third test, remember, is this, um, think of it as a revenue test. Um, and it's, again, you're looking at, it has two parts, and they're not alternates. They You have to qualify for both parts. Uh, one part is that you have to receive more than a third of your support from, again, gifts, grants, contributions, and membership fees, and gross receipts from exempt function income. So this would be things like museums, ballet, symphony, any organization that's operating um, a charitable activity where they're charging um, for that activity. The other part is that the organization also can't receive more than one third of its support from gross investment income or income from unrelated business activities. So, Organizations that have a large endowment, for example, and are receiving significant funding from that endowment may not be able to pass this type of test, but maybe they pass the other um, one of the other public charity tests. So those are the three tests. 
And again, so I'll just, the rest of the schedule you can look at, it covers supporting organizations. And then at the very end um, is the supplemental information. Um, so I'll stop sharing that and go back to our PowerPoint and hopefully it's still moving. We're good. Okay. Um, so again, I found that that Schedule A is the best place to kind of go back to to remember what the tests are. And the instructions for Schedule A also are very helpful. They're plain language. Um, they can help walk through what each of those line items is. If you have a you know, there are some parts of this test that um, I didn't really pay attention to until I had a specific client that had that specific fact and like, oh, how does that um, type of revenue fit into this test? Where do I put that? Um, how would I think about that? And, and so I find both, again, the schedule and the instructions for the schedule be super helpful um, in this. So um, that would be, in again, in thinking about how you might come across um, needing to use this test or understand this test. Um, that might be if you're working with clients that are maybe setting up an organization or trying to make sure that they qualify as a public charity versus a private foundation. Um, sometimes if you have a client who's donating to a charity, they want it to be a public charity or private foundation. Um, in that instance, you might not be looking at the detail of what's in this Schedule A, but might need to just know whether it, it's one or the other. Um, and again, you could look up their Schedule A, but there's um, other ways we can uh, can do that. And so uh, one of the, I wanted to point out two websites that I find useful and we'll pull those up so you can actually see them also. Um, one is the IRS's um, tax exempt organization search. And so, and then the other is the Mass Attorney General similar um, uh, search engine, uh, but for public charities in Massachusetts and their annual filings. So I'm going to stop sharing again and pull up. I'm always scared when I do this and I'm going to pull up like my calendar or my email, but um, I'm pretty sure this is the website. So let's start with the IRS website and let's, um, and I'll show you just how I often will look up an organization and, and how we can determine um, from the IRS if it's a public charity or a private foundation. And the example I love using is um, there are two organizations. Let's first use um, Change the World uh, Trust Foundation, I think is what it's called. So this is um, the IRS's site. You can search by either the EIN or the organization's name. And if I put in Change the World Foundation Trust, um, and then I ha happen to know it's in Massachusetts, but I don't need that for this search. Um, and as long as I haven't spelled anything wrong or have the wrong spacing, um, it's it should turn up um, an answer for us. And it did not. So I'm going to just back it up to this and put Massachusetts. And again, I will use this um, sometimes if we're trying to, and actually here's a good point on this. 
Um, the reason it didn't bring up the first search that I did is because it's in the database as Change the World Foundation TR instead of trust, and it's very specific in that way. So sometimes if you turn up nothing and you know the organization exists, just try different ways to search it. So Change the World Foundation Trust. Um, the IRS will tell you it has a deductibility code, and you can see that here, and it lists PF. So that's telling me that um, the Change the World Foundation Trust is a private foundation, and you can click on that question mark, and it will explain to you what their coding is. So PF is private foundation, and if it had come up as PC, it would be a public charity. Um, so let's do one more that's connected to the same person. And that's TB12 Foundation. And so it's TB12 Foundation Inc. And let's see if this is a public charity or private foundation. And here, instead of PF, we see that it's PC. So again, PC means public charity. And so just a, just a point that even though the name of this organization is TB12 Foundation, it's not a foundation. It's a public charity that just happens to be called a foundation. And that happens um, all the time with organizations that have foundation in their name. Um, and hopefully you've figured out by now that TB12 is Tom Brady's um, uh, organization is and also Change the World is also. Um, and I've decided that since Tom Brady retired this year, that I will retire this example when I do every time I do this this um, presentation. But if he unretires, then I reserve the right to um, continue using this example. So <laughs> let's go to a similar website, the, the Massachusetts Attorney General's um, office also has the public charities filing search. And the uh, search language that I use to find this, it's gotten a little bit harder, but if you put in public charities filing search, mass AGO, um, you should come up eventually to a page, this page. And similarly to the IRS website, you can search by name or by the EIN. Massachusetts also assigns a separate state account number to each organization, so you can search by that. But we'll search by charity name. And again, we'll do um, TB12 for Tom Brady. And um, here it'll tell us um, if there was more than one TB12. It would give us a choice. And we click on the choice, and you can see what filings there are. Um, so here there's not a code that the IRS is telling you what type of entity it is. But I want to point out the this Massachusetts site because it's um, it's a good place to go for more information about an organization. The IRS 990s are here. You can see that they're listed and the latest ones filed for this of 2019. Um, but also the state um, form PC, which is the state level requirement for the filing is here. And also the um, financials that are related. So if, if an organization is large enough and, and requires um, audited financials, you'll find those on this website also. And I that's definitely helpful. Um, I've used it all the time in working with potential clients or um, you know, a, a client has a question and you can look up their, um, a lot of information on the 990, but also just information that they have in their financials. And it kind of puts you one step ahead as, as an advisor um, to that entity and having this information there. 
And again, uh, one of the things I like to point out, I'm going to stop sharing. So I'm not going to pull it up from the website, but I have a separate, um, I have a separate, where did I put it? Not that one. That's the slideshow. That's the other slideshow. Oh, I didn't. Well, what I was going to show you, and looks like I don't have it organized well enough to put it. Um, I stopped sharing the slideshow, and then I will put it back. Everybody's being very patient with me, so thank you. Uh, show all windows. Yeah, I'm not. I am not finding it, so I won't share that. But I'll just put this the slideshow back up. Um, the what I was going to show you is one thing nice about the form PC is that it requires signature of um, an actual officer. Like sometimes you can have somebody else sign it for you. And on the Change the World Foundation Trust, the form PC had Tom Brady's signature for the um, form PC that was filed in 2017. And that was kind of fun to see. In addition, he dated it the day after the Patriots, you know, this is the era, right? 2017 is when the Patriots were still winning games. And he had dated it the day after they had had a win against the Chiefs. Um, October 15th of, of 2018. So again, probably an era that is is behind us and I will need to no longer use that as an example, but um, it was fun while it lasted. So moving on from um, those websites, and again, a good way to just check up on a charity and, and figure out if it's a private foundation or a public charity, um, before turning over to Valerie about um, if an organization is a private foundation, the rules that apply, we wanted to point out um, just at a high level that there are types of foundations, um, types of private foundations, and then wanted to point um, mention community foundations. So um, the most typical private foundation probably is a private non-operating foundation. And these are, are private foundations that um, have typically a large um, asset base and they're making grants to other organizations. So they're not running their own type of, of programs. Um, they might do some, but they're not to the extent where it's considered an operating foundation. Um, this type of private non-operating foundation is subject to the most restrictions. So percentage payouts and a 30% deduction limit when you contribute to it. And again, Valerie will be talking about some of those. Um, a different type of private foundation is a private operating foundation. Um, these are still private foundations, but they have um, they would be organizations that carry out their own charitable programs. So they might hire staff, have buildings, perform charitable activities, um, but they uh, just don't. Their funding source doesn't allow them to meet the public charity um, test. There are two tests for private operating foundations. We're not going to go through those. I've listed them in the outline. And, and um, if you run into that, there's a, a made the code and regulation section that you could look up. Um, and also wanted to mention community foundations. Um, 
these are public charities, even though, again, this is an instance where you have a community found foundation in the name. So like the Boston Foundation or the Metro West Foundation or the Essex um, Community Foundation, um, these organizations are publicly supported, but they also have some characteristics of a private foundation because they typically have endowments and make grants. Um, but they and they're specific in that they they often play a leadership role in the community um, and they're typically um, serve a specific geographic area. So again, the Boston Foundation serves Greater Boston area. Um, Metro West Foundation is um, near Carlisle, um, my hometown, um, and and um, all around Massachusetts um, community foundations um, are that. So um, just backing up to what we've covered before we turn to Valerie, um, all 501c3s are going to, the default is going to be that they are private foundations unless you prove that they're public charity. And there's the different ways that you can do that, either through the type of entity that it is or that it uh, meets one of the public support tests. And then um, if an organization is a private foundation, then it's subject to special rules. And now we'll, Valerie will go through those. Great, thanks, Kelly. Um, you always make this so straightforward, which I really appreciate. Um, and in addition to some of those factors, you know, you talked about the public support test. That's a really important factor in determining whether something is going to be a private foundation or a public charity. Another factor we deal with a lot with our clients is board composition. So I just wanted to touch on that really briefly before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of some of these rules. So, um, you know, one of the purposes of these rules for private foundations is that the IRS views public charities as being subject to public oversight, as Kelly um, described so well. And so one of the elements of that would be what the IRS views as sort of a public board, right? So, so the ideal is maybe you have, you know, 51% of your directors of a public charity being unrelated by family or business, whereas in a lot of private foundations, you may see it's completely family controlled, or perhaps it's controlled by, you know, a majority of directors who have some other relationship. So that kind of leads us well, I think, into these rules, um, you know, always keeping in mind with these rules that the IRS is thinking about, you know, where is this oversight? You know, who is who is in control of the foundation? How can we be sure that the funds of the private foundation are going to flow to their charitable purposes that um, they're designed to benefit? Um, and so um, I guess let's talk about, um, you know, again, some of the things the IRS is, is worried about. Um, so, Kelly, if you wouldn't mind shifting over to the next slide, yeah. that would be great. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so so number one, I think the IRS is concerned about personal benefit. Um, you know, in the public charity world, we often talk about private benefit. Um, you know, we also talk about that with respect to private foundations. The idea is again, you know, you have a charitable organization. So even though it may be controlled by a family-run board, the IRS wants to make sure that the funds are flowing for their intended charitable, educational, scientific, literary, you know, any other purpose that the IRS would allow. Um, for a private foundation to benefit. Um, so the next one that the IRS is concerned with is sort of perpetually holding on to the charity's assets. That's why we have these rules about minimum distributions. The IRS doesn't want a private foundation to hold on to all of its funds um, you know, for the foreseeable future without using them toward their charitable purposes. Uh, the next concern that the IRS has is perpetuating family businesses. So this is a similar concern, right? We don't want the private foundation to just be a vehicle for you know, family succession, keeping all the wealth in the family. The IRS really wants, again, those, those public purposes to be served. Another concern would be risky investments. Um, you'll see later, it's sort of 
jeopardizing or gambling idea. You know, the IRS does not want uh, private foundations to be engaging in any risky investments. We'll talk about the, the way that they classify that. It's a little bit old fashioned in terms of what they view as a risky investment, but definitely some principles apply to the modern era. And we can talk about how that's been updated over time. Um, and the last one would be non-charitable activities. So we'll talk about this in the context of taxable expenditures. And the IRS, again, um, wants to make sure that charitable organization is being used for charitable activities, ultimately, when it makes its grants. All right, so where is all of this codified? Um, we have these nice code sections um, in the Internal Revenue Code that are all near each other. Chapter 42 was added in 1969. And so you'll see if you're looking for these references in the code, they're all near each other. And we're gonna kind of walk through all of these one by one to guide you through um, these somewhat complex rules. Okay, so in terms of enforcement of these rules, the IRS starts at kind of a low level of taxation. They really don't wanna make the initial tax too high, um, especially with things that, you know, maybe our first violation, you know, private foundation didn't know what it was doing. But you'll see this is sort of a tiered system. So once you get past that amount, many of these violations will be taxed at a very high rate of 100 to 200 percent. And that's more of the punitive or prohibitive tax, right? The IRS really wants to make sure that if a violation occurs, it's not going to occur again. If it does occur, that maybe the um, organization corrects it. And so you'll see abatement is usually possible if there is a correction. Um, there are some exceptions to that, though. Self-dealing is one of them, and that's a really important concept for private foundations that we're going to cover in a little bit. Okay, so let's start with the excise tax on investment income. So this is not one of those sort of punitive <laughs> taxation issues. This is really, um, you know, a revenue-raising concept for the IRS. And um, the rules recently changed. So uh, back in 2019, before that, there used to be sort of a two-tier system where you have, would have a 2% tax that could be reduced to 1% under certain circumstances. But now, you know, the IRS kindly revised that to make it a lot simpler. And now we have this sort of flat 1.39%. Um, and so how it's calculated, um, you know, so you're going to take the, the net investment income, which is the gross investment income plus um, the capital gain net income less applicable deductions. And we won't go too far into the weeds on that, but there are more details on that in your outline if you really want to see how that's uh, calculated. I believe you got that um, prior to the presentation. And so generally this tax would be calculated and paid annually on the private foundations filing of their form 990PF, which as Kelly described as the annual return that's due for private foundations. So we'll move on from here. That one's pretty straightforward. Okay, so self-dealing. This is a really interesting issue. I love the picture that Kelly picked for this one <laughs> way back when she made this PowerPoint. Um, you know, it's the idea is, you know, someone's holding out their hand, another person's saying, no way, we're not going to deal with you. Um, and, and that's the concept I like to think about with respect to these rules, which happen to be very strict for private foundations. So for those of you who kind of know a little bit more about public charities, not to go too far into that, but, you know, public charities are subject to conflict of interest rules, which also apply to private foundations. But the rules are even more strict with respect to private foundations because, again, the IRS is concerned about this oversight and kind of using the private foundation as a vehicle to transact business and enrich someone they might know or a business that maybe there are shared um, shareholders or partners in a business that they want to benefit. So um, the general rule here is that a private foundation cannot execute any transactions with disqualified persons. And um, disqualified persons is sort of a misleading term because as we'll discuss, a disqualified person can also be an organization or a corporation. Um, and so the general rule applies that you can't do these kinds of self-dealing transactions, even if 
the transaction is fair and reasonable to the foundation, and even if the transaction benefits the foundation. So that's a really strict overarching rule. Um, you'll see, as we'll talk a little bit more about this, there are some major exceptions to this rule. And we always talk about sometimes the exceptions are more important than the rule themselves because you know the exceptions are really where um, some possibilities lie for what the private foundation can do. Um, so who is a disqualified person based on IRS standards? Uh, it's a lot of people and a lot of organizations. So it can be a trustee or director of the private foundation. So you know, generally the main leaders of the foundation who are controlling the organization. It can be an officer of the private foundation. So you know, treasurer, president, et cetera. It can be private foundation managers with similar powers to directors and officers. So maybe it would be, for example, an executive director, um, chief financial officer, that kind of person. It can be substantial contributors. So any donor who's contributed uh, more than 2% of the foundation's total contributions, and that's if the contributions, um, the total revenues are greater than $5,000 in the foundation. It can be certain family members of disqualified persons. So you'll see this is really broad, right? Um, and the types of family members that the IRS is concerned with, just so you know, are more of these um, vertical descendants. So, you know, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren and their spouses, as well as spouses, right? So that's that's also considered a relationship that the IRS is concerned with. It doesn't usually include things like cousins, second cousins, right? So there is sort of a limit to the family relationships here. Um, but if you're interested, all of that is sort of in the IRS guidance. Um, and we provided a few more resources at the end here that you can refer to. Um, okay, so in terms of uh, the self-dealing rules, so let's talk about some of these major exceptions. So I'd say one of the most common exceptions um, would be the personal services exception. And I have to say, this is very narrowly construed. So at first it seems like, great, okay, so you can offer personal services to the foundation and that won't be considered self-dealing. Well, when can personal services actually be offered? So let's think of a, a current example that I think we see a lot with our clients and, and just generally in the private foundation world. You know, someone may ask, can my daughter manage the funds of this um, private foundation? And maybe she wants to provide investment advice and receive a, a reasonable fee to do that. Um, so generally that would fall into the exception to these rules, but you have to be very careful. So you're going to have to do a lot of tracking in terms of whether that compensation is actually reasonable. And so how would you determine that? So, you know, one of the ways is you would look at similarly situated organizations. So you're going to look at other private foundations that maybe have a similar size. Maybe they have a similar um, geographic area where they're working or a similar type of activity. And then you're going to look at what are they paying their um, investment managers for similar services. So definitely has to be within fair market value, reasonable fee. Um, but in addition to that, you have to make sure that these activities are really important and essential to the exempt functions of the foundation. So, so the board is going to have to make that decision and really track it very carefully through board meeting minutes. And the IRS applies um, you know, very strict scrutiny to these kinds of transactions, which is why in many cases, attorneys will advise, you know, it would simply be easier to compensate your child in some other way, right? Maybe there's a family LLC and your child wants to work for that business. Maybe there's another family business where they could be involved. Or maybe they just want to be on an advisory board of the foundation. So there are a lot of ways to involve your family. And often, you know, the safest advice may be to kind of compensate outside of the foundation. But certainly, you know, every attorney has a different perspective on that. Um, okay, so we talked a bunch about these rules. There's a lot more here. Um, but I think we'll probably need to move on a little bit just because we're running a little bit low on time. Um, definitely refer to the outline. And I'm happy to answer any questions as well, you know, after the presentation. So um, 
I guess our next major private foundation rule would be failure to distribute income. So we talked about this briefly earlier. I love the picture again here because it's some kind of hanging on to cash, right? And so the IRS has these rules um, about minimum distributions, right? So the private foundation can't perpetually hold on to its assets. It has to distribute out a certain amount. And so what is that amount? Um, we have this 5% here. Um, you know, it's a little more complicated than just 5%. So the idea is, you know, you're going to pay out 5% of the net investment assets in qualifying distributions. And that's an IRS defined term. So I thought we could go over a bit, you know, what is a qualifying distribution? And this will come up again later in, in another context. But generally, a qualifying distribution would be a grant to a, a qualified charity. So often that's a public charity, as Kelly described, you know, you can check the IRS database, you can see if the organization you want to give to is a public charity. And we always recommend that private foundations who are doing grant making actually check that database because they are going to need to know if it's a public charity that is currently qualified, where their status hasn't been revoked, and that they're listed on the IRS database. Um, so that's one example of a qualifying distribution. Another example would be um, necessary and reasonable administrative overhead costs um, to make those grants, right? So every charity has some admin that they need to use to administer their grants. So those costs would also be included in these qualifying distributions that goes toward the 5%. Um, another item that would count toward that would be um, costs to provide direct charitable activities, if there are any. So again, private operating foundations may be more likely to have some of these direct charitable activities, but certainly a private non-operating foundation, so a grant-making foundation can do some activities like that. So those could be included as qualifying distributions. And then also cost to acquire assets used in the private foundation's exempt activities. So I won't go too far into depth with, with that one, but just so you know, that's another type of, of qualifying distribution. So what happens if a private foundation does not make these qualifying distributions? Well, there's an excise tax, and that's a common theme. Um, and the excise tax amounts to 30% of the undistributed amounts. Um, and then there is this more punitive tax, as we talked about, kind of a two-tier system. There's an additional tax of 100%. If the private foundation doesn't make up the deficiency within 90 days of receiving notice. So you can see these are kind of a big deal, these rules. Um, the IRS really takes them very seriously, um, you know, which is why we like to kind of lay all of them out in advance for our private foundation clients. Um, usually this one with a good accounting can be very easy to achieve. Um, you know, we don't usually see a lot of issues with the, the failure to distribute income, but certainly if you're not keeping track of your grant making, it could happen. Okay, I guess we'll move on um, to the next one. Okay, so um, I'll try to try to race through this one a little bit. It's it's a fascinating story. So we have salad dressing here. Seems out of place, but you'll see how this comes in <laughs> into play later. Um, so the idea with excess business holdings is that the IRS doesn't want um, a private foundation to be involved, basically exclusively with running a business or primarily with running a business. Right? Their main goal is to make charitable distributions, um, you know, for exempt purposes. And so they really care about the business holdings that a private foundation may have. So the general rule is that a private foundation is prohibited from controlling any business. And it also generally can't hold more than 20% ownership in any business. But when calculating ownership, it's not just the amount that the private foundation holds, it's also the amount that it's disqualified persons hold. So again, you see this disqualified persons element coming into play here. It's a very important fact in, in all of these rules. Um, and again, that could be you know, trustees, directors, officers, and um, entities where, where people hold a certain percentage. Um, and so uh, there are rules about um, exceptions for these excess business holdings. And that's where, you know, you'll see there's, there's a very special exception related to Newman's own dressing. 
Um, so one of the exceptions is that a private foundation can hold up to 35% of the business if the effective control of the business is not held by disqualified persons. So um, the IRS defines effective control as direct or indirect power over the direction and management of the policies of the business. Um, so that's that's one exception. Um, and there's another exception if the private foundation holds 2% or less ownership in the business. Um, and in, in that case, um, the holdings would be exempt from the restriction on excess business holdings, regardless of how much ownership is held by this disqualified person. So that's what we call the 2% rule. Um, I haven't seen it come into play too much, but again, there is that just de minimis exception um, for ownership there. Um, so now let's move on to the Newman's own exception. This one's kind of interesting. So basically, you know, the actor Paul Newman founded a business in 1993. The goal was to give all the profits to charity, which was really nice. Um, you know, so he passed away in 2008 and he ended up leaving his company to his private foundation. In 2013, um, he got a five-year extension to dispose of the business holdings. So that's one rule that the IRS has is that you can dispose of them within five years to not be subject to this rule. So they actually got another five-year extension. So they had 10 years to dispose of the holdings. But um, when the IRS kind of heard about this, they said, well, this case is really interesting. We don't normally see such a, you know, a benefit to the public from, from a company. And so they actually decided to add a completely new section to the code, which is section 4943G. Um, we call that the Newman's own exception. And the exception is basically, um, you know, if a business if a business is owned 100% by gift or bequest and all of the profits go to charity and it's an independent operation, it can be exempted from these, you know, excess business holding rules. So um, really interesting case. You can read about it online. There's a lot of articles about it and, and the new code section. Um, so in case you're interested, feel free to refer to those sources afterwards. So I know we're running a little bit short on time, but I do think it's important to cover these last two topics. So uh, with respect to jeopardizing investments, you'll see, you know, we have cards here. <laughs> um, so the gambling concept, right? I think it, it really brings that to light. You know, you definitely don't want a private foundation to be investing um, in any manner that could jeopardize its charitable activities. And so um, I think, as I referenced before, the IRS kind of takes an old fashioned viewpoint on this. You know, they list particular things um, that could be considered jeopardizing investments, you know, things like commodity futures, trading on the margin, short sales, uh, purchasing puts, calls, and straddles, buying warrants, investing in working interests in oil and gas wells. So, again, all of those are a little bit old fashioned, but they're just examples of what the IRS may consider um, to jeopardize the charitable assets of the foundation. In terms of a more modern viewpoint, um, you know, generally speaking, foundation managers are going to be looking at prudent investor rules. So many states have enacted uniform prudent investor acts um, to sort of, you know, um, generate some guidance about what is a prudent investment. So first and foremost, they should kind of be looking at those laws and, and the surrounding guidance. In many cases, there's attorney general guidance um, in the state of formation, which may also provide some additional thoughts on, you know, what is a prudent investment. Okay, so I guess we're on our last topic, taxable expenditures. This is a really important one, and this is one that comes up with clients almost daily for me, so I thought I would spend a little bit more time on this one. So there are a bunch of things that private foundations simply can't do, and this is a nice little diagram to, to demonstrate what those are. So the first one, you see a ballot box to people kind of casting their vote. So a private foundation cannot attempt to influence the outcome of a public election, and it cannot carry out a voter registration drive. In addition to those kind of political activities, the second one, um, you know, a private foundation can't carry out propaganda, and it also can't attempt to influence legislation. So you can't go say, you know, this private foundation supports X piece of legislation, not allowed. 
Um, there are some exceptions to certain legislative rules. We won't really go into those today. Um, but this is just a key point for private foundations. The IRS takes that very seriously. And so we often have to do some counseling about lobbying and what is and isn't allowed. The third one, um, this is where we get to the taxable expenditures idea. So generally speaking, a private foundation um, can't make grants to individuals unless they are for travel study or similar purposes and pre-approved by the IRS or unless it's making grants to, um, uh, so so let's let's break this into two pieces actually. So first you have grants to individuals, right? So, so in terms of those grants, um, those are gonna be considered taxable expenditures unless you have these particular pre-approvals to make scholarships or other grants to individuals. Or you can also make grants to individuals and, um, and to non-exempt organizations in another context. Um, we like to call that expenditure responsibility. So the idea is, you know, let's say you're a private foundation and you're normally used to making grants to public charities. That's your sort of standard procedure, you know, pretty simple. You've checked the IRS database. You're sure it's a public charity, very simple grant making procedure. And you know that's going to count toward your minimum distribution rules. Um, there are cases when you can actually choose not to make a grant to a public charity. And you can actually expand beyond that as long as that grant is going to be within your you know, charitable, educational, scientific, or other purposes. So really, we're looking at the purposes of the grant rather than the recipient organization. But when you do that, um, you have to very, very carefully track those grants. And we call that expenditure responsibility. So the idea is um, you may have a three-part process that the IRS looks at very carefully. And the first part of the process is what's called a pre-grant inquiry. So let's say you have, um, for example, an organization in, um, let's say, South Africa, and it's a really great charitable organization, but they're not a U.S. charity. They don't have U.S. public charity status, but you want to make a grant to them for an educational activity. So you might have a pre-grant inquiry form where you're looking at the recipient charity in South Africa and saying, okay, is this, is this a good organization? Are they found financially sound? Can they use the funds for our intended purposes? Do we want to support them? And so, you know, if that's all a yes, um, great. You can kind of move on to the next phase. So the next phase is an actual grant agreement between the private foundation and the recipient entity. And the grant agreement is going to have to very carefully track, you know, what are these funds going to be used for um, and tracking all of the purposes that are sort of IRS vetted, right? Charitable, educational, et cetera. And then finally, you're going to have a post-grant follow-up. So there is a requirement that the grantee um, is going to report on how they actually use the funds. And again, this just goes back to that IRS monitoring, you know, making sure that charitable funds are being used for charitable purposes, right? The IRS wants to know, you know, how is this grant implemented? How did the recipient charity use the funds? Um, and so that's a great way for, you know, private foundations to kind of expand beyond their traditional grant making activities. I would say it is very labor intensive. So if you have kind of a tiny private foundation, you know, they don't have a lot of staffing or resources, it can be hard to do this, you know, expenditure responsibility tracking, but it can be really useful, you know, if you have people kind of monitoring these grants, you know, another way to, um, you know, benefit charitable organizations that may just not have that public charity status. So I think we've actually, you know, amazingly made our way through most of these materials. And, you know, I know there's so much more we could we could talk about, and these rules are very te technical. So certainly you may have questions. So we did want to provide both of our contact information. You'll see Kelly's right there as well as mine. You know, we're happy to field any questions about this after today. And, um, you know, we hope you learned a lot. I did want to check to see if there are any questions in the Q&A. Kelly, do you see any? I don't see any right now. Yeah, look, I don't see any questions. So if um, we have a few minutes, if somebody wants to put something in, um, feel free to do that. Um, but as Valerie said, I think um, both of us are happy to 
um, field questions, a phone call or an email um, uh, to either of us directly is fine also. So even after today. And then I think we wanted to um, uh, just mention that, you know, this is one part in the fundamentals series for the tax exempt organization section. And I think it was cross advertised in the trust and estates section also. Um, so if you haven't seen the prior ones, um, you should look for those on the, you know, BBA has the education portal and you can um, find the prior webinars there. And then there, I believe there are some additional fundamental series. We didn't have the list of them, but we thought we'd at least mention it. So um, look for those also. And Thanks I again, everyone, for, for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. And I think I see something in the chat. Um, just want to make sure it's not a question, but nope, uh, that's great. But yeah, definitely, like Kelly said, feel free to ask any questions after today. And we really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Beautiful. And again, thank you all so much for attending. Thank you to our speakers and seeing no questions. I want to wish everyone a great afternoon. Have a good one, everyone. Bye. Have a good.